The Yesterday and Today podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun compilation of chronological source materials as they pertain to the Beatles. The show is in no way affiliated with Apple Corps, nor any organization connected to John, Paul, George, or Ringo in any way, though we do consider ourselves premier members of the Bungalow Bill fan club. So kick back, turn off your mind, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Yesterday and Today, 1968, Episode 10, November through December. Now, ladies and gentlemen. Side 4 starts off with the song that John did while the other Beatles were away. This is the version that John wanted as the A-side of the single with Hey Jude on it. When the others rejected it as even the B-side of the single... This version was left for the next album. There was a little trauma with a song called Revolution that I felt bitter about. You know? The other three were on holiday, and I finished off recording Revolution and Revolution Number 9, which is on the White Album, I think. And uh, I thought it was au courant, as they say, and it was about what was going on at the time. And I wanted to put it out as a single, you know. And I thought we were powerful enough to take a few, if it wasn't the greatest hit, you know, like some of them, like Lady Madonna, for instance, didn't sell that many, relative for Beatles, huh? So, you know, I didn't think every record we made had to sell two billion, you know. I wanted to say something. I wanted to put it out as a single. The others came back from holiday, you know, I had it all ready. I said, let's put this out. You know? I want to say, I, we should say something about it, and this is what I want to say, you know. And they said, no, it's too slow. Recording sound engineer Jeff Emmerich made his recording debut with the Beatles on Revolution 1. His slate intro to the song remained on the LP. Here's Jeff. I think John just liked it, to be honest with you. I don't think it was just to poke fun or anything. As you know, I I find it hard to listen to that album, and I didn't hear that finished track for many years, and I realized that that my slate was on there, you know. I think...
returns once again to the music of his parents and grandparents for this number, which has John playing lead guitar, George playing bass, and Paul on piano. Here Paul speaks about the track to Tony MacArthur of Radio Luxembourg. Talky picture feel, somebody once said in the last couple of days. Uh, and in fact, this is the sort of thing that uh, I think when I heard it first, the Russ Columbo type thing came to mind immediately, so why? I've never heard of him. <laughs> Russ Conway, yes, Russ Columbo. Um... Why did it come to mind? What do you mean? Well, I mean, it was just that sort of, uh, I suppose, 1920s song. And you go, I can imagine the, the thing with the, the guy on stage with the, uh, in this case, you maybe with the megaphone and uh, the, the cymbal thing and the, the precise type backing. Yes. Well, I like, uh, you know, my dad's always sort of played uh, fruity old songs like that. And I like them. I like the melody of old songs. And the lyrics as well, you know, this. I mean, there's some old lyrics like, you know, sort of a woman singing about a man and she's saying, oh, uh, but something about I want to have his initial on my monogram. So, you know what I mean? Yeah. Just good, good lyrics and just good thoughts that you don't sort of hear so much these days, you know? And so, um, I, I would like, quite like to have been sort of a 1920s writer, because you know, I, I, I like that thing, you know? Um, you know, the top hat and tails and sort of coming on to insert this kind of number. I like that thing. She was a working girl North of England way Now she's hit the big time In the US 
sein. And if she could only hear me, this is what I'd say. I'm in love but I'm lazy So won't you please come home Oh honey pie My position is tragic Come and show me the magic Of your Hollywood song You became a legend Of the silver screen George's last song on the album is about the problems of Eric Clapton. During the 60s, Eric had a lot of cavities in his teeth and needed dental work. He always had a toothache, but he still ate a lot of chocolates. He couldn't resist them. And George was warning him that one more of these soft-centered chocolates, and he'd have to have his teeth pulled. He was over at George's one day, and George had a box of chocolates on a table. They were a box of Macintosh's Good News assortments. In constructing the lyrics to the song... Harrison got stuck for something to sing in the middle eight. Apple press officer Derek Taylor helped with this middle eight by suggesting the title of a film he had just seen called You Are What You Eat, which was made by two American friends, Alan Pariser and Barry Feinstein. Alan was associated with Derek during the Monterey Pop Festival of 1967. And for the many colorful names in the song lyrics, Eric was eating the many exotically named treats such as Cream Tangerine, Montelimar, ginger sling, Savoy truffle, and coffee dessert. Cherry cream and coconut fudge was invented to fit the song. So as Eric ate one by one, George wrote the names into this song.
took a lot of people by surprise. Many thought it was weird and scary. It was meant to be. How much of Revolution Number no. 9, John, from the White Album, how much of that was accidental, if any? Uh, well, it's like an action painting. You don't, the Revolution Number no. 9 is the, the weird one, right? Mm -hmm. I had a lot of loops, tape loops, which is just a circle of tape, if people who don't understand it, it repeats itself over and over. Had about ten of them on different mono machines, all spinning at once with pencils and things holding them. I had a basic track, which was the end of the Revolution song, where we'd gone on and on and on and on. And I just played it sort of live into another tape and just brought them in on faders, like you do as a DJ, and brought them in like that. And it was accidental in that way. I think I did it twice, maybe. And the second one was the take. And the number nine, number nine, number nine was uh, an engineer's voice. You know, they have test tapes to see that the tapes are all right. Mm -hmm. And the voice was saying, This is EMI test series number nine. This is uh, number nine megacycles. He was talking like that. And I just liked the way he said number nine. So I just made a loop of him saying number nine and brought that in whenever I felt like it. And uh, 9th of October, I'll be 105 and nine seems to be my number. And it's the highest number in the universe. After that, you go back to one. And the revolution number nine was a was an unconscious picture of what what it's what I actually think will happen when it happens. You know? That was just a, like a, a drawing of of revolution. You know. At the beginning of the track, you can hear a bizarre piece of control room chatter in which Alistair Taylor apologizes to George Martin. 
for forgetting to bring him a bottle of claret wine. A bottle of claret for you if I'd realised. I've well, forgotten all time. about it, George. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Yes. Cheeky bitch. Number nine. 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 Number nine.
Number nine. Number The twist. Eldorado. Take this, brother. May it serve you well. Come naked. 
for the time and, and your comments, which I, I know so many million people out there are going to be very interested in. Uh, the final track, I suppose, is the wrap-up to the LP and to the show tonight. And I would imagine that a lot of people, uh, a lot of people who are known as standard singers or middle-of-the-road singers in America are probably going to record this track. Now it's time to say Yes, um, it's, it's very much that kind of track, you know. It's, John wrote it mainly, it's his tune, you know, uh, which is surprising for John because he, he doesn't normally write this kind of tune. But it's a very sweet tune and Ringo sings it great, I think. Ringo sings another one as well, one song John wrote called Goodnight. The arrangement was done by George Martin. Because uh, he's very good at that kind of arrangement, you know, very sort of lush, sweet arrangement. Um, and that's all I can say about it. It's very sweet. And in fact, it's good night. Yeah.
was wonderfully. Thank you. <laughs> While it automatically became a gold record, critics complained that it was erratic and disorganized. Now, don't put me down. I don't want to come out like some freaky rocker. I thought we should have made probably a very, very good single album out of it, rather than making a double album. I love the White Album. I think in a way it was a mistake doing... Four sides, 95 minutes, 31 tracks. Because, um... First of all, it, it's too big for people to really get into it, for reviewers and also the public. Maybe now people have bought it and if they've really listened to it for years or since it was out, then they, you know, they'll have their own favourites. And there's a couple of things that we could have done without on the album. And uh, maybe if we'd have made it just compact. Mm. 14 songs say there was all different types of music and types of songs and there was nothing really shocking about it i don't think there was anything particularly poor about it but um it was a bit heavy you know i find it heavy to listen to myself in fact i don't listen to it myself the songs and most of it is just as good as anything we record uh i think it's a fine album you know, I'm, I'm not a great one for that. You know, maybe it was too many of that. Look, what do you mean? It was great. It's sold. It's the bloody Beatles White Album. Shut up. Five of the selections on the White Album held the wrong meaning for a cult of ritualistic misfits led by Charles Manson, who used the song titles to somehow rationalize the crazed murders he and his followers committed. Well, he's Barmy's like any other Beatle fan who reads mysticism into it. I mean, we used to have a laugh putting this, that, and the other in, in a light-hearted way that people, some intellectual would read as some symbolic youth generation. What's it? But we also took seriously some part of the role, you know. But, uh, I mean, I don't know, what's Helter Skelter got to do with knifing somebody? You know, what, I don't even, I've never listened to the words properly of Helter Skelter. It was just a, sort of a noise, you know. McCartney saw helter-skelter as an innocent term of unbalance, but it is now synonymous with the murderous Manson cult and their atrocity. Meanwhile, producer George Martin was finishing off the final mixes of tracks for the Yellow Submarine soundtrack LP, due out in January. to Beatle management and leader position. Well-meant methods turned to madness as many branches of the apple tree suffered under the strain. We had to really find out everything about our own personal affairs and the group and business affairs since Brian died. Yeah. You know, we had a, it was really hard because there was nobody else who could do it except us. So we had to do it and at the same time we had to try and make this album 
So just at the moment, everybody, we just finished the album and everybody's just going away for a break, have a holiday. So I think we've made it. You know, we come back refreshed to Christmas. After Brian died, we collapsed. Paul took over and su supposedly led us, you know. But what is leading us when we went round in circles? We broke up then. That was the disintegration. My question is that any one moment um, or a particular point, did, did you know that the Beatles were breaking up? Breaking up? Um... Hmm. Mm, that's a good question because it had to be an ongoing process but was there a time where you said this isn't going to work anymore yeah I think what happened was during the White Album when we were making the White Album um, pressures were starting to build and it was weird because you didn't really know where they were coming from you know it was just beginning to feel a little bit um, nervy you know rather than just a nice comfortable thing it had always felt like I don't know why it happened really you know I suppose there's a lot of reasons I suppose we'd come uh, in many ways we'd done it everything we could do. I do remember during the making of the White Album, uh, Ringo was threatening to leave the group and stuff. And we'd have all these little uh, ups and downs. And we had to sort of say to him, no, you know, don't leave. You're the best drummer in the world. We love you and stuff. And he'd say, oh, great. You know, I didn't think you liked me and stuff. You know how it is between people. You, you don't tell them you think they're great all the time, you know, and you take each other for a bit, a bit for granted. And we were having the odd argument too many so I think it started around about that time. Here's George Harrison. The worst time, I think, was the White Album. Although it was a good album and we made it through the, those sessions, during those sessions, it was a very difficult period. Also, it was a double album. It went on forever. That was when the rot started setting in, really. During 1968, Apple matured, fell off the tree, and the rot began to set in. Still, even as late as the end of 68, John believed the Apple experiment worth the effort. At first, we're trying to do a big conceptual idealistic thing, which we found impossible. And Apple hasn't made any money yet. You know, it's just a complete loss. You know? And it's a, one of the biggest laughs to the establishment. You know, the real establishment are dying for it to break. You know, they don't want anybody like us in the, in the scene, you know. Yeah, do you care if it breaks? I care that it breaks because our idealism is real and we'd like it to be something that helps other people as well as helping ourselves and they've brought out records that people want and just, but there's, it's just, if it breaks, it breaks, you know, oh, blah, deal, blah, da, you know, and it's just that and that's, or that's my attitude all down the line, you know, whatever we'll be, but don't, just not the bit about just sitting in the and hoping, you know, accepting the will of Allah, yeah. because you do have a choice of some kind. But if it breaks, it breaks. If it doesn't, it doesn't. It's not going to break me, you know. I I'm not Apple. Alistair Taylor says when one takes on the overwhelming task of trying to figure out why Apple turns sour, you have to start with the Beatles themselves and then the people they hired. They blamed everybody but themselves. I mean, I came in for blame. Uh, they, they said, you know, people are ripping us off. Uh, people are doing this. But, you know, they were the ones that were doing it. They accused everybody else of, of, of ripping them off. But, I mean, they, 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 they just gave carte blanche. I mean, I mean, people buying genuine antique desks for their office, you know. I mean, and, and Ron Cass had this incredible all-white office, which cost the earth. I mean, the... It was unbelievable. So is it any wonder money was flying out? Peter Asher had real old master paintings on his wall in his office. 
You know, I mean, it was just, oh, well, it's the Beatles, plenty of money, let's spend. They would say, I mean, you, you, you can't imagine what it was like. Paul had come in and say something, and John had come in an hour later and completely change it. Then we went through a period when we weren't allowed to do anything until Caleb had thrown the I Ching. Well, you know, I mean, this was... But then, we, it was all our fault then. You know, now, one of the ideas I had uh, at Apple was because, you know, obviously we did a lot of entertaining, taking people out for lunch and whatnot. And I, that, I'm going to claim this was my idea that we had our own kitchen. We had this beautiful house in Savile Row. And I came up with the idea that we should have a small kitchen. Uh, where we cooked and we had our meals if we were entertaining anybody. That we did it, instead of going out and paying £30 out of the restaurant, that we could do it. And they'd gone down in all the journals and the books that we had two Cordon Bleu chefs. What we had were two young girls who trained at the Cordon Bleu School of Cookery. Now that is very different from two Cordon Bleu chefs, right? The kitchen was used, everybody still took guests out for lunch. And the most of the extravagance was Peter Brown, Neil Aspinall, sitting down having a superb four-course lunch with classic wines in the dining room at Apple. You know, with, with, with Mouton Rothschild wine, you know, and there was this huge metal cabinet full of, of vintage wine and champagne. It was unbelievable. And you go in, and there they are, sit there, no visitors. You know, so this was all self, self-destruction, you know, I mean, and, and this whole bit. It, I think uh, Peter Brown mentions it again in his book. I did my nut, because all, all the invoices used to come through me. Well, I was getting these horrendous drink spills. I mean, I've forgotten the exact quantity. It was bigger than, than Brown put in his book, actually. I called the boys in, I said, look, this is a farce. You know, I mean, to be fair, we all had our own drinks covered, and then possibly my weekly thing would be something like one full bottle of spirits, some mixes, one week it would be vodka, or if I had someone that drank whiskey. Neil was the same, Peter Brown was the same, to be fair. And suddenly you get Derek Taylor's, which was like two crates of brandy, you know, two crates of Coke, you know, eight bottles of scotch, and this was week after week. And I called, you know, I called the meat, I said, look, this is a farce. And the answer I always got for that is one instance and anything else like that. The answer I got was, oh, don't be a drag, Alistair. Forget it. Relax. Enjoy it. This accountant who we had, who we fired because we couldn't stand him, a young guy, who just sent me a letter, I think, one day saying, you're in chaos, you're losing. This is so much a week going out of Apple. You know, people are all saying, you, you know, you sold out the dream of Apple. There were people were robbing us and living on us for the tune of... In 18 or 20,000 pound a week was rolling out of Apple like that and nobody was doing anything about it. All our buddies that worked for us for 50 years all just living and drinking and eating like fucking Rome, man. And I suddenly realized it. As George mentioned earlier, each one of the Beatles took a holiday from being Beatles in November and December. John, Ringo and Paul stayed in London and got involved in various projects while George went off to Los Angeles where he continued to do work on Jackie Lomax's album and find other Apple talent. It was at these Jackie Lomax sessions that George was introduced to the electronics music expert Bernie Krause. Krause in turn introduced George to the newly invented but still undiscovered Moog synthesizer. One evening he and George worked together on an experimental piece of music called No Time or Space 
This piece was to be part of George Harrison's electronic sound album, slated for release the following year. John was back in court where he pleaded guilty to the possession charge. He was ordered to pay a fine of 150 English pounds in 20 guineas court costs. At the time, that was roughly equivalent to 400 U.S. dollars. And the only reason I pleaded guilty because I thought they'd send Yoko away because we weren't married. And I thought, what's the word? They'd throw her out of the country. So I copped a plea. John figured copping that plea was the path of least resistance. You got a hundred pounds sentence. Hundred pounds, something or other. Hundred and fifty pounds. Do you uh, do you have an opinion on drug laws? Would you care to say something? I just think they should make some differentiation between the hard and soft drugs. You know. Mm-hmm. I think maybe they should have pop bars. You know, if they're going to have alcohol, you know. But I don't know. Has this? Uh, I'd sooner <clears throat> ban sugar. You know. Throughout the month of November, John, Paul, George, and Ringo separately record their portions for the up-and-coming Beatles 1968 Christmas record, which was released to the fan club on December the 20th. Are you going to release a Christmas record this year? You mean one of those fan club records? Right. Yeah, yeah, we'll do that. I want it. But it's still only available to people in the official Beatles fan club. <laughs> because, uh... <laughs> We've got two, 64 and 66, and we'd like to get their other ones. Well, really, that's something that, uh, you know, we were doing specially for the fans. How many fans are there over there in England? (laughs) There's quite a lot. But, you see, the thing is, they pay their money, and they get the pictures and information on that. But the main thing they really get by being a fan is this Christmas record we do. And it's pointless if we put it out so everybody can buy it, because then... You know, they don't get anything special. But we'll be doing that again. Yeah, we'll do it probably first week in December. Tiny Tim, the ukulele-playing crooner, whose most notable song was...
Tiny Tim recorded Nowhere Man for the disc while visiting George in the U.S. Here's Tiny Tim remembering that meeting. I had a song with George Harrison back in 68 called Nowhere Man when I came to his room in New York City and I told him how I loved the melody and I went into the song and he said, stop. And he put on his tape recorder and he said, just say Merry Christmas Beatles 1968 and go into Nowhere Man, which I did. And he put it on every album from here to Australia. Hello, this is a big high and a sincere Merry Christmas from yours truly, Ringo Starr. Happy New Year, Happy Christmas, Happy Easter, Happy Autumn, Happy Michaelmas, everybody. Happy Christmas, everybody, to you. I'd like to wish everybody Happy Christmas this year of 1968, going on 69. Happy Christmas, Happy New Year, all the best to you from here. To wish everybody Happy Christmas, Happy New Year From there to here Happy New Year, Happy New Year Happy New Year, Happy New Year upon a time there were two balloons called Jock and Yono. They were strictly in love bound to happen in a million years. They were together man. Unfortunate timetable they seemed to have previous experience which kept calling them one way or another. You know how it is. But they battled on against overwhelming oddities including some of their beast friends. Being in love, they clung together even more, man, but some of the poisonous monster of outdated busload of hip-throwers did stick slightly, and they occasionally had to resort to the dry cleaners. Luckily, this did not kill them, and they weren't banned from the Olympic Games. They lived hopefully ever after, and who could blame them? <laughs> Well, here we are again, another fab Christmas. Christmas time is here again. It ain't been round since last year. And we'd like to take this opportunity all the way from America to say happy Christmas to you, our faithful, beloved fans all over the world who have made our life worth living. And over here I have Mr. Malcolm Evans, who's through thick and thin, would surely like to say 
a word of greeting at this festive occasion. Merry Christmas, children, everywhere. Ringo Starr. Good evening. Hello, me dear. I didn't know you were coming. I'm not surprised. Well, I am. Certainly am. I would have thought so myself. Well, if you ask me, I think it's insane. Occasionally. Yes, me too. Twice a week sometimes. Fourteen and six. Nineteen and five for safety, if you don't mind. Yes, sir. Don't you say yes to me. I'm telling you. It's a private line, you know. Private line? I've been on this line for two years! <clears throat> well, it's my proud pleasure tonight to introduce one of the most versatile performers in our career. And he's come all the way from Stokely Carmichael's on sea. And I hope you're going to like him. Let's give him a big hand. Happy New Year, Happy Christmas, Happy Easter, Happy Autumn, Happy Michaelmas, everybody. Happy Christmas, everybody to you. Once upon a pool table, there limped a short-haired butcher's boy by the way of Ostergrad. It comes in sentence, cesspool, and a wick airport. Her father was, in a long story cut short, in the middle of his life sentence. We're indebted to the colloquial office for its immediate disposal, Aronowitz. Including, I might add, Hot Vitella Tutem. On the other hand, bag, I mean to say, L'Amore nous sommes toujours realistic. speaking, for this film is about an hourglass houseboat. The full meaning of Winchester Cathedral defies description. Their loss was our Gainsborough nil. The sound of a manservant tile defectively lasting barred up in a love busy Gary Dale time. How close can you get his bag in Avianderly Council originally a bad baffling court? We have a special guest here this evening, Mr. Tiny Tim. I'd like to ask him to say a few words. Oh, hello to you nice Beatles. Uh, it's so wonderful and what a thrill it is talking here uh, in Mr. Harrison's presence, Mr. Weiss's presence and all his nice, wonderful friends. And the thing is, I just want to say Merry Christmas to you all and uh, a Happy New Year. <laughs> Oh, thank you, Tony. Uh, Would you like to sing us a little song? Oh, I love it. Here's a song I did in 1966 in front of Miss Jill for the first time. And I did this in Albert Hall. And what a thrill it was uh, to do this then and now. Exactly, I did it then. Isn't he a bit like you? Ah. 
here. God bless you, Tommy. God bless you. Contact the show, visit yesterdayandtodaypodcast.wordpress.com or email at yesterdayandtodaypodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at yesterdaypod on Twitter and search Yesterday and Today Podcast on Facebook. See you next time. Hey everyone, Paul and James here to tell you about one of the best music podcasts online today. It's called Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. Yeah, as longtime listeners of our show know, Take It Away and its hosts, Ryan Brady and Chris Mercer, are the authority on all things Paul McCartney, Wings, and the Beatles. Their five-star rated podcast walks you through every single Paul McCartney release from 1970 to present day. That's every song on every album, including singles, b-sides, bootlegs, and you will most likely hear songs you've never heard before, which is part of the fun of the show. You'll also hear old favorites from new perspectives, all lovingly placed in the context of McCartney's career and the musical sounds of their era. Yeah, and don't miss the amazing interview with Denny Lane, co-founder of Wings and McCartney songwriting collaborator, as well as a slew of other special guest appearances that give some really cool insight into the music that spans the last 50 years. So if you're a McCartney fan, you've found your new favorite show, because I know I have. Seriously, I never miss an episode and neither should you that's take it away the complete paul mccartney archive podcast available for download now wherever you find podcasts check it out now i'm paul kaminsky and i'm james kaminsky and we are the co-hosts of the third men podcast we are a jack white history podcast where we go over the white stripes third man records the list goes on and occasionally we do a funny voice or two So you're going to probably want to get used to that. Or turn it off. Whatever your preference. Or whatever turns you on. (laughs) Hey now, you're an all-star, because occasionally we'll do an all-star. We did do an entire Smash Mouth episode once, that is true. (laughs) We are every other week on Wednesdays, and we are available on iTunes and really wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, so why don't you come on and find yourself a little home here with us? We promise we'll be weird roommates. If I want to do the dishes without my pants on, that's my deal. That was weird. See? We weren't even (laughs) lying. (laughs) 